This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. Thank you for finding us another edition of No Stop Lights. I want to thank, uh, once again, our sponsors, Pepsi of Florence, Carolina Bank, Mickey Finn's Marlboro PD Electric Co-op, Francis Marion, University McLeod Health, McCall Farms, Victor's Restaurant in downtown Florence, PLC Commercial Real Estate. Um, all local companies, all supporting this, whatever it is you want to call it. We're still in the very early stages. We're still trying to figure our way around. Um, some of these will consist of a guest. Others will not. We're in the process of involving some interns out at Francis Marion University um, in experiential learning. I'm not a professor. I'm not a. I'm certainly not a, a lecturer by any stretch of the imagination, but I do believe that I can provide some sense of guidance to young people on what makes the world um, go around. This newfangled media that we found uh, a bit of success in, in in the radio, and and eventually I think we'll do okay in the podcast world. Um, but yeah, Francis Marion University uh, is, is collaborating with us and allowing two interns to gain some real-world experience um, outside of the classroom, and we've got some plans and some... Um, some assorted ideas that we'll um, we'll kind of sort through and work through as we um, develop and and improve hopefully. But um, the no stoplights is a kind of a play off my hometown, uh, Pamplico, South Carolina. People don't believe that, but it literally has no stoplights. It once had a, a a flashing light. No longer does it have a flashing light. Some of the state infrastructure bank improvements to Highway 51 um, relegated this. Caution light to the dustbin of um, rural South Carolina history. There are some of these podcasts that I refer to notes. There are some of these podcasts that I have far better designed, and and they're, they're, they're about issues. We've talked to Representative Jay Jordan. We've talked to CEO McLeod Health Donna Isgett. We've talked to FMU President Fred Carter. Uh, one of the more moving and stirring podcasts we've done was recently when we talked to Jeff McKay, um, and it was very personal. Uh, Jeff was a is a friend, was, is a friend of mine, had a terrible accident in his family's life, and Zach, um, his 28- or 29-year-old kid, is dealing with the consequences of a an horrific and, and tragic accident. So we don't really have the definite game plan. Are we conservative media? On the radio, we are. I don't think we're that here. This is not an extension of Wake Up Carolina, same host, same producer, um, some similarities. But I, I'd like to believe that we will evolve as time goes on and try to address some of the local issues and state issues that our community and our area and our state are dealing with. And I want to talk about a, a global issue that has a very real-world um, sense and feel. I've written a couple of um, a couple of words. I don't have any notes here. I mean, I'll show you the book. I don't have any notes whatsoever. No stoplights. The four words I have are think, feel, emotion, and logic. I've got think and feel beside one another. I've got emotion and logic beside uh, the others. What we think is often not what we feel. What we feel is a sensation. I feel um, a certain way. But if I think a little bit about how I feel, is, is my feeling based on emotion or is my feeling based on, on logic? Politics is kind of, of a convergence in what we feel, what we think, how we emotionally feel, what we're willing to emotionally invest. And then there's logic over here that we hope at some point in time in the process of deciding what we believe, um, logic 
has to be a part of that. I'll give you an example. We're nearing the Christmas season. I am a Christian. I believe in the virgin birth. The resurrection, the crucifixion, or the, the story of Easter. Let's stay with the virgin birth. Uh, Mary and Joseph uh, were chosen by God to have a Savior. Some don't believe that. I do. I'm not talking about Judeo-Christian value. I'm talking about accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. Not only am I not a lecturer or professor, I'm certainly not theologically sound enough to be a, a pastor. But, but I became a Christian because I felt my mom would not mislead me about something that pivotal and important in my life. But there was a day I got old enough to begin thinking about. Once again, mom tells me certain things about the world. I trust my mom, and I got baptized as a 12-year-old in a town with no stoplight. Um, but I don't know that I thought very much about that journey, about that decision, about what consequences that led to the eventual um, existence that I uh, that, that I've had for nah, 60 years and will have uh, hopefully another um, 30 or so good years ahead. Um, emotion became a part of that. Um, you know, I read the Bible. I'm emotionally moved. My, my heartstrings are, are pulled into the gospel. I'm thinking about the New Testament, um, Paul's writings. It, it's very real to me. It's very sensational to me. But, but then I got to go logically. Okay, logically, how do I argue that, that a, a lady and man did not have sex, the lady got pregnant, and out of that came a Savior. That's not logical. I can think that to be true. I can feel that to be true. My emotions can suggest that that is real. But logically, I, I've got to confirm that. So I went on a journey after my sister died in 2004, and, um, and the first time in my adult life, I began to yearn about what life meant, why I believed some of these things. So, so not only do I think and feel and have emotionally invested in the, in the virgin birth, I have logically created an intellectual underpinning that, that, that breeds me confidence in I am right that Christ is who he says he is. I use that as an example because we're in the Christmas season. And Christmas is a celebration, uh, December 25th. Who knows when Christ was born? But we Americans uh, not only celebrate, we commercialize the uh, the birth of a Savior. So, so once again, think, feel, emotion, logic. Let's take that into politics. Let's parlay the, those emotional energies, uh, including logic, because logic has to be confirmed. I mean, it, it's in contrast, but it's got to be in somewhat agreement to emotion. Let's, let's go down the road of politics for a second. I am a fairly conservative um, limited government, deregulating Republican. I mean, you know, I got a lot of checks and a lot of boxes when it comes to what I believe philosophically. I have thought through some of these things. I feel some of these things. My emotions convince me these things are true. But logically, I think the world, America leading, is a better place if we have a smaller government, lower taxes, less regulation, and a celebration of life, liberty, the pursuit, the pursuit of happiness. That's a fair debate. You can think, feel, invest emotionally, and logically believe that my way is the wrong way. You can be a liberal. I, I, I respect folks that have a liberal opinion. If they have done what I think I've done and invested the energy and effort to make a determination about why they believe what they believe, how it affects their judgment, um, you know, their belief about government, their belief about friendship, about, um, you know, the fundamental role of government's a great debate liberals and conservatives have. And I think we've touched on this a little bit in the podcast. One of the great intellectual experiments and debates in American history was Jeffersonian, Hamiltonian government. This is the early, uh, uh, the, the creation of a nation came as a, you know, result of a revolution and a war, but 
the great philosophical debate that, that it required thinking, feeling, emotions, and logic was Jefferson's way of limited government or Hamilton's way of kind of sort of a central planner. That They were inspired by some of the Enlightenment-era thinkers, philosophers like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. Locke inspired Jefferson. In other words, um, your rights come from God, that they're not granted by a government. No, no government has a right to tell man what he can and cannot do. Hobbes believed that, I mean, he wrote the book Leviathan, and that basically suggested that man can't be left to his own. Man's a failed creature, a flawed creature. And if man is left to individually make these um, decisions, that's a fair debate. I mean, that, that's a, the Locke-Hobbes debate, the Jefferson-Hamilton debate, the conservative-liberal debate, very fair. I know where I land, and I land there because I have thought through some of these emotions and feelings I have. I have kind of kind of allowed that to bump into logic, and I'm a small government conservative. Doesn't mean that, that my way is the right way all times. It certainly does not mean that. I'm not suggesting that. But at times... I think there are there are certain situations, certain issues, certain circumstances that require us to put our liberal and conservative biases aside. And I want to go here for just a couple of minutes. One of the leading stories in American politics today, it is it's not local, but it is, is the Ukrainian um, funding. And, and I'm talking about look, Ukrainian Russian war. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's Eastern Europe. That, that's, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the Cold War. I realize, um, I realize the, you know, the, um, the threat that, that the former Soviet Union, I, I guess, created uh, in the American way, the American belief, once again, um, you know, the, 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 the spirit of capitalism, uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We talked about that a second ago. I understand that that Russia is not our best friend. I'll accept that Russia is not our best friend. Um, I mean, I love these people that have not dedicated much time, energy, or effort, but but they're so sure of what America needs to do. And, and once again, um, some of the territorial disputes, uh, some of the um, ah, some of the disagreements about where the boundaries are. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the maps of Europe, you'll see. That that you know um, that they're not. I mean, they're well established, but they're always in flux. I mean, they're they're always moving, especially uh, pre Second World War. Uh, you know, the boundaries got redrawn post Second World War. America had uh, a lot of involvement there. To the victor go to spoils. We were the um, the shining city on a hill at the end of the of the Second World War. But but I, I'm not here to give a history lesson. I'm not here to talk about you know the uh, the good and bad of Second World War. And the line should have been here and it was there. I'm not talking about NATO creep. I'm not talking about the obligation America has um, to NATO. I want to stop. And, and kind of address something that I read this week that I found a bit troubling. Um, you may not. You, 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 your, your thinking, your feeling, your emotions, your logic may lead you to a very different place than I. And it's not that I'm questioning what America should do or not in regards to funding um, to a high degree, to a lesser degree, um, involved for the long run, involved for the short run, <coughs> excuse me, the situation um, in Ukraine with um with, with, with Vladimir Zelensky and, and Vladimir Putin. What, what I do want us to do for a second is concentrate on humanity. We're, we're talking politics. We're talking Republican. We're talking Democrat. We're talking liberal. We're talking conservative. I want to pump the brakes and see if we can agree that, that at some point in time in an issue as important as war, 
Does humanity eventually play a role in this or not? I'm not accusing people that want to fund Ukraine of being inhumane. That's not certainly what I'm suggesting. My, my point is, why are we funding Ukraine? That, that, that's an important and critical issue. Think, feel, emotion, logic. Why are we funding Ukraine? Are we funding Ukraine because we fundamentally believe there's a chance that the Ukrainians can defeat Russia and live life as a peaceful democracy, and that is kind of a um, that 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 will make that region of the world uh, a more inviting place, a more productive place, a more prosperous place. Capitalism, uh, to quote Milton Friedman, has um, lifted more men and women out of poverty than any other economic theory. And second, ain't close. Is that our goal? I mean, are we trying to be a part of creating a bastion of liberty and, and democracy that leads to prosperity and changes that part of the world forever? If we're doing that, then, and if you believe that, then I think there's there, there's justification in what somebody like Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are asking the American taxpayer. Guys, because when we, we've got to understand this. When Schumer and McConnell, majority leader, minority leader in the U.S. Senate, are asking government to do X, Y, or Z, they are, in essence, asking you, the taxpayer. The government does not have its own money. I mean, we can do on the Federal Reserve and fiat currency and quantitative easing and quantitative... The government does not have its money. The only money source government has is you. I mean, even if the Fed prints money out of thin air, you're the backstop. I mean, you're the guarantor of all that of all that money we don't have. So, so, so let's say that McConnell and Schumer are asking the American taxpayer to support Ukraine because we believe that if Ukraine can defeat Russia and, and force Vladimir Putin back where he came from, there will be a bastion of democracy. That, that the spirit of mankind will be better than it's ever been in that part of the world. And once people taste freedom, that they want more of it. That, that, that is an honorable argument to make. And I think that's a fair debate to make. I don't trust that debate. I don't believe in that argument because I don't think the Ukrainian government, the city of Kiev, is much more trustworthy than the Russian government or Moscow or the or the Chinese government or Beijing or, for that matter, the, the United States government and, and Washington, D.C. They, they all have their, their flaws and fallacies. And, and the reason I'm questioning what the motivation is is some of the sentiment out of Washington, D.C. And, and I read something. Um, Mark Thiessen was a speechwriter for George W. Bush, um, and we know that would have been uh, one of the uh, one of the heights. Uh, I don't know one of one of the most. I, I hate to say this, but it's the, one of the most productive periods in neoconservative history was the George W. Bush uh, eight years as president. Justified or not, like it or not, believe it was all worth it or not. That there's a it's complicated. I can't fix it in a in a 10, 15, 20 minute podcast. But but I, I read an essay that Mark Thiessen wrote about some of the decisions that we must make in regards to Ukraine, and they were troubling, that they were deeply troubling. The mainstream media took some of the, some of the excerpts. Now, now, once again, the media does what the media does. The media does not tell you what is real. The media tells you what they wish was real. It's kind of a, um, I mean, it's a narrative-creating machine. It's not reporting um, the hard news. But, but here's where I want to go real quick, and then we'll conclude. Mark Thiessen's essay basically argues, and some of the mainstream media, Washington Post, I think the um, the Boston Globe, maybe the LA Times have picked up on, on some of these stories, is that the reason, I mean, if you are 
Because historically, when the military-industrial complex says American safety and security is at risk, we the people have basically agreed. I mean, we have blessed the decisions. We have allowed the military, uh, I don't know, the defense budget in America today is about, it's just south of a trillion dollars, $880 billion. I mean, at the rate of, of spending increases, it'll be a trillion before you know it. It'll be one of the, what, four line items in our federal outlays that exceed a trillion dollars. Uh, I think the next closest country is uh, maybe China, 340 billion, maybe Russia, about 280 billion. We spend more on our military industrial complex than I think the six closest rivals, and it is rivals. I mean, you know, uh, big armies create big intimidation. Big intimidation creates um, a long runway and a, and a lot of um, flexibility for a government to do what it what it chooses to do. But Thiessen is basically arguing. He's not arguing that, that American safety and security is at risk because the American people don't believe that anymore. I mean, they've mis been misled time after time after time after time about what is in our best interest. Forget the, forget the monetary consequences. I don't think you can, but let's set that aside for a second. Let's say you're a fiscal conservative. And as much as you'd like to police the world, you, you've made kind of a calculus on our bottom line. You look at America as a business and you say, wow, I mean, we're $33 trillion in debt. We've got to cut spending some way, somehow. Um, the defense budget has to be fair game. It has to be on, on the table. But what Thiessen is basically arguing is that, okay, let's, let's say we can't convince the American people that, that Ukraine's best interest is in our best interest, that if Ukraine has to compromise and negotiate and create a peace settlement and give up some of the territory, then Putin becomes an even more dangerous man. I don't disagree with that. I think if you do give in to Putin, you do create probably a more dangerous man. How much more dangerous? Nobody knows the answer to that. I mean, I've heard comparisons to Hitler. I think Putin's a survivalist. I don't think he's a conqueror. I don't think he has any interest in conquering all of Europe. I think he understands his limitations. Once again, he's a brutal dictator, but he's a survivor. And you don't survive making just irrational calculations. But back to Thiessen. Thiessen is arguing today that the reason Americans should get on board with the further funding, I think there's an extra, uh, there, there's an additional request of $61 billion. We're already into Ukraine, north of $100 billion, and we really don't have any clarity. Um, Speaker Johnson is basically saying, look, I don't know that I'm fully opposed to, to uh, defense spending or, or some additional spending in Ukraine, I just want, I want to know where we're headed. I mean, what is the end game? What, what is Ukraine's hope and most optimistic outcome? Because if we're going to commit more American dollars, we, we deserve to have some clarity of what, what, is, what are the plans to be successful. And I think that's very legitimate. I think it's warranted. I think it's responsible. I think it's what an elected official should do. But Thiessen is basically saying, and, and kind of admitting, admitting in a roundabout way, hey, the old strategy of American safety and security is just not working. The Republican Party historically has carried the water for the military-industrial complex. The Republican Party, for all of my adult life, has been a fairly neoconservative, interventionist, globalist party. Um, I guess, you know, my political <sighs> opinions began in the Reagan administration 
I, I didn't have many. They were certainly not uh, profound by any stretch of the imagination. Not that they're very profound now. Hell of a lot more informed today than they were back in the in the Reagan era. But but Reagan ushered in. Uh, you know, the great line, peace through strength. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I don't. I think there's there's great value to being, um, to having the ability to f- defend yourself uh, against any foe, foreign or or domestic. I think having the largest and best funded and strongest military in the world is very important to, um, to American sovereignty and safety and security and prosperity and advancement. Um, I do believe that the Republican voters believe or feel they've been misled and I think when you go to think, feel, emotion, logic, I think the feelings and the thinking has become logically based. What has the military-industrial complex or American interventionist said since Vietnam that has played out as we were told? Crickets, nothing, not a damn thing has played out as we were told. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have gone to Afghanistan. I'm not saying we shouldn't have Bosnia and Iraq and Desert Storm. and De- I'm, I'm not passing judgment on any of that. What I am passing judgment on is a blank check. And a, uh, a group of, of voters that historically bought into a very hawkish view of the American military until now. And, you know, is it is it Trump? I don't think it is. Is it Tucker Carlson? I don't think it is. I mean, obviously, those folks have a loud voice and a lot of sway in the Republican Party. But there's a reason that Republicans are less hawkish, more dovish, not pacifist by any stretch, and I'm not, I'm not a Putin sympathizer. I think that's insulting. When someone says, hey, I have questions about the amount of support we're giving Ukraine, the amount of tax dollars we're spending in Ukraine, and all of a sudden the media tries to label you a pacifist or a Putin um, sympathizer. But Mark Thiessen kind of went a bridge too far for me. Thiessen basically said in his essay that has now been picked up by some of the media that if you are not in support of additional funding for Ukraine, and there's a big debate in the Senate and Congress now about border funding um, to try and create, in other words, there's a negotiation. If some get more border funding, they may vote for additional Ukrainian dollars or American dollars to go and help Ukraine. Uh, I'm a hard no. I mean, I'm a hard no. If I were a member of Congress, I'd be a hard and emphatic no. No more money for Ukraine. I'm not a Putin sympathizer. I'm not a passive a pacifist. I am uh, more of a dub than a hawk unapologetically. I just think we've, we've tried to police the world, and we failed. We, we've tried to, um, I don't know, uh, manage the affairs of all these countries on the globe. We've, we've you know, and I, and I want to say this. On a linear graph, America good, America bad, I think America's good, overwhelmingly good. I think the world's a much better place because 240-some-odd years ago, we won a revolutionary war. Out of that came the greatest experiment in the history of self-government. I am a believer that America has contributed more good to the world than bad by a long ways. But when Thiessen says the reason we need to go to Ukraine is because American jobs— build the javelin missile and some of these other weaponry, bullets and ammunition and whatnot, and that's good for the American economy. To me, that excludes any thought of humanity. How in the hell can you believe 
um, sending more money to Ukraine in the name of creating jobs and, and building missiles and bombs and American bomb plants and, and missile plants without thinking about the Ukrainians that will die, the Russians that will die. It's easy to sit over here and say what Russia and Ukraine could do. Here's what I do know. It's, it, it's savagery. I mean, it's brutal. It, it's, I mean, it, it's a, it's a, um, it's, 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 it's a death machine. I mean, I don't have the facts or figures in front of me. I know the average soldier in Ukraine today is 43 years old, and eventually in probably a year, maybe 18 months, Ukraine will run out of men to fight in a war. So Mark Thiessen says we must support Ukraine. We must um, approve the $61 billion appropriations because that puts Americans to work building bombs and missiles without considering the humanity without considering the fact that those bombs and missiles will obliterate other human beings. I'm not a pacifist. I'm not a Putin sympathizer. But but I, I'll be damned if I can allow someone to defend uh, an extra $61 billion and then insult two members of Congress uh, by saying Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, I think, are the two members, Republican members of Congress who are very outspoken America firsters. They, they believe that the Republican Party has become too globalist, too interventionist, less focused on the interests of the American people. Thiessen's essay and some of the mainstream media are basically saying that if Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance don't support this $61 billion funding, they're not in support of American jobs, that this is a jobs bill. It's not providing the Ukrainian army with more armaments and military equipment and fighting equipment. It is a jobs bill. And if they don't support the $61 billion, how can they call themselves America Firsters when the factories won't have as many orders for building javelin missiles and ammunition and armory and whatnot? And, and there's been an evolution in, in politics. The um, Historically, in my life, I said a second ago, the Republicans have been the hawks. The Democrats have been um, the doves. And I guess you live long enough, you see an inversion of about, of about anything. And I'm not saying what we should or should not do. I, I'm just saying that if America makes a decision to spend $61 billion more taxpayer dollars in Ukraine, I hope it's not because we have a burning desire to put Americans back to work building bombs and missiles to go to Ukraine to kill a bunch of 25, 26, 28, 43-year-old Ukrainians and Russians.